This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, a new documentary is highlighting the human element of the opioid crisis that we all need to listen very carefully to. Colin Askey, director of Love in the Time of Fendel, tells us about his film and the incredible love that's found in the groups impacted by the opioid crisis. What is document dumping, by the way, and what do you need to know about it? Political scientist Dwayne Bratt helps walk us through what is document dumping and how governments hide when they release information to the public, like taking out the trash so we don't find it. And are you okay with, as always on the podcast, Guns and Roses? What about gators? This is the Shift Podcast. Throughout the last few years here on The Shift, if you've been with us, you have heard many conversations about opioids. Uh, if you're new here on The Shift, it's it's one of those really difficult ones that we try to talk about from so many different angles. And we here have uh, been exposed to um, colleagues and friends who have been found dead in their homes after a long weekend. The use of opioids is not necessarily the crackies in an alley. Uh, stereotype that for many decades we put on people. And I don't say that um, uh, judgingly. I just say that for calling out the stereotype for what it is. Uh, The use of opioids has become um, deeply embedded into many different people's lives. And in a lot of ways, people that you would never suspect, you know, when you watch American news and there's always a bad guy who did something and there's always that neighbor who says, Oh, Bob was the nicest guy of all the guys. I'm so surprised. Apparently, that's a Canadian accent in the American interview, but you get my point, right? Well, that's what it's like with drugs. It'll probably surprise you. My guest right now is a a film producer who has spent uh, a fair bit of time researching and preparing a... um, uh, a new documentary, as a documentary is probably safe, a new production that um, that goes into fentanyl in particular, opioids. Colin Askey joins us here, New York City. Uh, Colin, how are you? Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, I'm doing good. Thank you. So uh, congratulations on the work, by the way. Uh, quite, quite well-reviewed, quite um, uh, well-anticipated, your work. Love in the Time of Fentanyl. Um bit of juxtaposition, I would say, in your title. Let's start there because I find that curious. Well, uh, like for me, it's not really, uh, yeah, too too uh, too crazy. I mean, that for me is what the film is about. I kind of, you know, like was trying to figure out a title and, and that really just said it for me. I think it's about a, a community that is often viewed as a problem area and people have a lot of, you know, ideas about that having had the opportunity to be a part of this community um, and know a lot of the people that are there. Um, really, I know it's a community to be filled with a lot of compassion and love and, uh, and courage and resilience. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, to me, it's, it kind of just w- was the nail on the head. I wasn't really uh, stoked on the the title and was always planning to have something uh, hit me, you know, that would be maybe something better or more, a little bit obscure, but, at the end of the day, I felt like that just kind of said it all. Well, it is okay to have it figured out, right, from the beginning. So that works too. The the folks in Vandu, um, the uh, Van, no, I'm not going to get this right, but it's the Vancouver basically drug users. Um, that's not quite the right ac- acronym, but it is Vandu. I mean, they're a loving, caring community. I've learned that in my conversations with folks that are involved in Vandu, and um, 
it's amazing how they care for each other. And it's, I think the main thing that blows my mind the most about that community is it's how they say goodbye. Cause they know that saying goodbye is the thing that they do the most. They know that. And the way they say goodbye to when a colleague or a friend or a loved one dies from drugs is quite special. Um, I guess you get good at it after a lot of practice. Um, what did you find about that community and about that part of it? Yeah. Um, so the, the acronym is Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. And uh, they were you know, one of the first uh, drug users unions in the world, actually. And in the 90s, when Vancouver's downtown east side had an overdose crisis, an HIV crisis, they, they organized as a way to, to kind of just fight for rights and say, you know what, we are those people like you mentioned the word cracky in the alley earlier on and and i think you know people assume that th those are the written offs you know the unreachable and i think vancouver's downtown east side is a, a community of people that have been abandoned and and uh, uh from different communities around canada and came together and found a place that you know where some people may assume that they're crackies in an alley but together uh, that they, they've found a community. And so Van, Van Du, uh, organized for, for services, um, for harm reduction services in the neighborhood and, and were very impactful. The documentary that I've done is, is about uh, a place called the Overdose Prevention Society. And they, following in Van Du's footsteps, have similar um, methods to honoring people that have passed. And that's usually gathering in a circle and just calling out the names of loved ones. Um, and there, there's a scene of that in the film. But in, in the downtown east side in general, there's because of this crisis, there's been a, a lot of, of different ways of honoring people that have passed. And a lot of it's through graffiti, a lot of just names on walls and uh, certain uh, monuments uh, and artwork that's now in the community, which is uh, it's both, you know, and I think this is very much of the film. It's both tragic, but also very beautiful. So how did you, Colin, get involved in, in this? Um, why did you choose this particular topic? I'm assuming it, it lands in your life somewhere. Yeah. Do you want the, do you want the short story or the, uh, the... I got time, Colin. I want your heart. That's what I want. So whatever that takes us to. Yeah. So it's a personal, it's a personal, it's very personal for me in the sense of like, I have my own story um, with addiction and was court ordered into a long-term uh, abstinence-based treatment center when I was like a teenager. And I went on to work there for, for many years. Um, I gone moved to Vancouver for film school actually, and was started working in the downtown East side, assuming that with, you know, my experience that I'd be a, a shoe in, but I found myself working in, in harm reduction. And this was really, you know, a new world to me. I was working at uh, insight, which was the first safe injection site in North America. Mm -hmm. I found myself handing out syringes and, you know, cleaning up booths after people had used and that really went against everything that I was taught to believe about this issue. Um, yeah, that, that would be the intersection of abstinence versus safe use. Yeah. And just, you know, enabling is, is kind of a term thrown around a lot from, from people when they first hear about harm reduction services. And, and um, um, we want, you know, I think everybody assumes that the best path forward is getting off drugs and, and having some sort of recovery and abstinence based treatment. And, um, I learned pretty quick that in the downtown east side, it's it's a different story, and every and there's people facing just enormous challenges and various challenges, and everyone has kind of their own uh, story there. That that I soon 
learned that the, I, whether I wanted to hand a person a clean syringe or give them a safe place to use or not was not going to change if they used in that moment. The, the power that I had was uh, giving them a place to use safely or a syringe to use that wasn't, you know, everybody wouldn't get HIV or Hep C. And then I went on to learn that, you know, when I did those things and provided a space that wasn't filled, and I don't mean me as in myself, but being a part of an organization and a community that did this, that, that it allowed for a trust and a relationship to be built. So, um, you know, when these people did want to change in their life, we were the ones that they came to. And there was all sorts of benefits that, that grew from that moment. And inside the place where I worked, you know, had a detox upstairs. So, and I, I can tell you, I worked somewhat in this field in a lot of different angles. And I've never seen anywhere refer more people to detox and treatment than this safe injection site. So interesting. I, it's interesting I, what I, safe, creating a safe place also creates safe conversation too, right? Yeah. So it really had a profound in, impact on me and just kind of um, changed the way I, I looked at this issue and really also kind of the way that class and, um, you know, how some things work for some people and they definitely don't work for a lot of people. And, that goes from addiction treatment to mental health care to to everything in this society. And uh, uh, and also, you know, I think when I came to the community, I had my own judgments about and, and fears, I think, about people. And that that all really changed once I got to know people and, and really remarkable human beings that live in this community. Um, how did you uh, how did you face that part, um, Colin, when I mean, you came from abstinence, you came from your own background, um, you do. I'm going to be easy on the language and it might not be accurate. So please correct me. But I mean, you're stepping into a world that potentially could be temptation. Um, and coming from the abstinence world, when you said that your own fear and judgment kicks in, it's very human. Uh, again, I'm not judging you for that. Um, it's very human, but it sounds like you also stepped into that too. I, I hear an awful lot of, you know, growth from your story of being a teenage guy who, who had his own troubles. I mean, that acknowledgement part's so incredibly important because not only did you, I mean, I've never been a drug user, so for me to step into that would be naive and, you know, I, I wouldn't be worried about the same things that you would, and yet you did it and you pulled it off. Like, Yeah, I would say that like at that, that point that really wasn't uh, difficult for me, and it's also just what I mean by is, and I think what a lot of people struggle with is that they may have someone in their lives that um, had some addiction issues, they were able to go to an uh, AA or an NA meeting and sort their, their life out. And I think that the downtown east side and the people that access services like harm reduction services it, it are coming from a different place. But I think that sometimes as a society that we have a failure to really understand different perspectives and different challenges and different backgrounds. Um, and so we project, you know, what we know hey, our, my aunt went to an AA and it worked for her. Why can't it work for this person? They must not be trying enough or they must not be, you know, wanting it bad enough. And it's that, that I think is a real failure in the, in this system. And, and for me, just, I had the privilege of, you know, hearing these stories and, and being, seeing the reality up close. And, uh, and I knew that my story was, you know, didn't even touch what a lot of these folks were facing and just the reality of, of what was happening there. Right. And it's also a lot, there's more to it, I think, than just addiction and our ideas of, of addiction. It's a, it's a real, the downtown east side for me is a real representation of a lot of failures and a lot of different uh, uh, ways of, of what we value as a society, really. It's quite fascinating um, and clear, which is, which is interesting. Okay, love though. Love in the time of fentanyl, 
Um, you know, that in itself is, is um, uh, I mean, I had fentanyl once. Uh, I came out of surgery. It was doctor admin- nurse administrated uh, in the hospital. And they, we had talked about it in advance. They said, would you, you know, are you okay with this? They explained everything. And uh, I remember I ca- I'd come out, I had screws and stuff put in my shoulder. And they said, how's your pain? I had just woken up and they, um, I said it was terrible. And they said, well, this is where we will do this that you agreed to. Are you still okay with that? And I said, yes. And holy crap, Colin, it was the best seven seconds of my life. And, um, and then I fell back asleep again pain was gone but whoa so i i feel like as much as uh mine was a completely different scenario i feel like i got a little snapshot of why somebody would um would like that and so how is it possible um for the love part is this relationship between people yeah i think it's a i think for me that's what this community taught me and i think like if we're talking about like fentanyl specifically, the the movie really isn't about that. And it's, it's, it's just, that's a reference to the time that this community is in, in the sense of it's a community with a lot of injection drug users who really didn't have a say um, once fentanyl hit the, hit the street of what they were using. And they found a community that is now finding themselves, you know, uh, addicted to fentanyl. And that's, heroin for example like if people had the choice uh that wouldn't do that that wouldn't uh make them well again i guess is what i'm saying uh if they were using heroin wouldn't even touch them right so it's a whole different ball game now and like as as you said like it's so much more powerful so much it was hard enough i think for people to to try and detox from uh opioids before fentanyl let alone now we're in a position where someone's trying to get off fentanyl it's really i think tough on them so so yeah, I think that what the love for me in the film is is just about hey, what we were talking about before about people that you know are written off and 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 forced into the shadows, and that I think the rest of us have a lot of fear around and a lot of judgment about, but are for me some of the most beautiful you know compassionate people I've ever ever met. I don't say that like as in trying to be nice. I say that as uh, it's my, really my experience. Um, you know, people that may use fentanyl and inject fentanyl and all these carry all the baggage that we have when we watch this but they're also they're saving lives every day they're making meals for each other they're they're putting hands on each other's shoulders and trying their best to to help each other out in ways that i think we could all learn from and that's what the community has done for me is really taught me a lot about what love and non-judgment and compassion really truly is and that's what i tried to do my best to capture in the film that seems to hit you differently when you say that about that sort of belonging and being accepted part. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's the, that, that's the, that moment is what really the, the harm reduction really is. You know, it's a moment where most services, uh, you know, and harm reduction is getting more and more, you know, acknowledged now, but I think for a while it was, if you weren't willing to be abstinent or were abstinent, the door was shut on you and you were told, come back when you're ready. And that, now is a death sentence and that idea of saying no if you're not willing to be abstinent then we don't we can't help you is is really leaving people to die right because every mm. chance every time they use is a russian roulette these days right so yes, yeah. that moment when you say come on in it doesn't matter where you're at we're going to try you know what do you need a cup of coffee do you need a place a uh, place to use that moment is is that acknowledgement of their humanity and saying you're welcome 
is is that is so key i think of 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 giving someone a chance you know and all the other things that we want for them can can happen but it's it really takes us being able to accept people whether they're they're still using or not or what's going on with them that we we accept people in that moment and open the door for them mm -hmm. yeah that's fascinating when you you know when you take the frame of just looking at um, I also use my life, I guess, as an example, or maybe yours. Um, like really with your friends today, Colin, and my friends today, I do know that I could walk in with, I know that they would embrace me if I walked in the most embarrassing, ugly moment of my life, right? If I, if we went out for beers and I somehow ended up drunk and naked dancing on a table, um, I know that the very next morning they would, I'd be greeted with smiles on their face and they'd be like, oh, how you do? How you feeling? Right. Like it would be safe for me. Uh, I would be terrified, though, of that happening. I'd be terrified of walking in the room, the shame that comes with it, the self-imposed shame that comes with that. The as we look at um, the love and empathy and compassion that comes in this community about some of those ugly moments when people break down. Um, not everybody feels like that. I, I most certainly would be hesitant to walk into that moment. Right. And I know that my friends would be there for me. And I'm not quite sure that we as humanity or as a society, we talk about those moments and embrace those moments the way that, you know, that this community does. I mean, when you, that's what, what you got me with when you said the things that we can learn from them. Um, I don't know about you. I mean, if you had your most shameful breakdown ever, self-imposed shameful breakdown ever, I mean, would you be 100% open to walking into your friends and going, hey, by the way, here's the ugliest part of me. Do you still love me? Right? Like, but they do that every day. Yeah, and I think um, I think a, a lot of that is uh, is is the stigma that's associated, and it's the the you know whatever it is that I think that that we you know would have happened to us that is embarrassing or whatever. I think that you know those those true friends get it, and and uh, I mean I'm I'm a weirdo and, and do ridiculous things all the time, so I really put my friends to the test with that stuff. But with like, uh, you know, with f people who use drugs or homelessness or poverty and all this stuff, there's such a, a stigma associated with it that it's it's just not allowed. People see this and there's a fear and there's like, a, what do they want from me or who they, are they going to hurt me kind of stigma that's attached. And don't get me wrong, like, you know, people that use drugs are, are human beings and some of them are, uh, I, I want to swear, but some of them are mean and some of them are kind. They're not all just beautiful people that we need to just try and figure that out it's like they're just human beings that have all the same things as everyone else but these um the challenges that they're facing sometimes you know are really shown they're more harder to hide you know in downtown east side uh, it, it, people's wounds and trauma is really very visible and i think that that's what what scares people and that's what also adds a lot of a lot of stigma so that's why this community exists and people say oh it's just you know there are people come there for the drugs and i think one thing that shouldn't be taken for granted is, is the fact that people are there because they're accepted and people are there because they can walk down the street with, you know, um, a Viking hat or, or whatever wounds they're carrying and not be judged as they would walking down the suburb in Edmonton or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Walking through a suburb. That's amazing. Um, okay. So you go into this and you, uh, Colin, you, you have, you already have a, an idea of the community from your experience. So you go into this with a general idea about how much love is to be found there. I've taken away 
the, the, the that um, acceptance, right? Uh, in this conversation and in other conversations, it's probably just that acceptance, right? Just the willingness to show up no matter what by the other people in the community. It's probably my big takeaway. What was the takeaway that you got personally out of this that surprised you when you made, you know, Love in the Time of Fentanyl and you put it all together? Something that you didn't know, something that was new to you, maybe something that just hit you personally that that you learned for yourself in your own life. Yeah, so like, and I never quite finished that. Like, but like the draw for me of getting there and filming because I was in New York at the time was like, this was a community that I cared about and knew lots of folks that were actually passing away. And, and there was a time or almost we- weekly where we were getting calls and also people that I'd worked alongside that, you know, I knew were kind of just going through hell. Um, having said that, like I was watching this from a distance and uh, I also knew that like there was some, you know, talk in the media about how hard this was in the paramedics, but it was like from a point of view of like these poor paramedics have to go into this kind of community. And I knew the reality was that it was the community members themselves that were teaching themselves how to use naloxone, save their neighbors and loved ones' lives, and were the real first responders. Uh, But they weren't really getting that same light shone upon them. So that was kind of like my mission going in. And I, I didn't really, I guess it was shocking for me just to see what a a crisis and and, and really a war zone looked like for me. Like I, I remember a friend telling me that they'd lost the ability to like uh, to grieve and, and the hierarchy of, of grief because they were losing people so quickly that they, someone that they had loved one week and then the next week it's someone else that they never ever felt that they had enough time. And that, that I think just really blew me away of just, um, you know, I, I worked in the downtown east side, but I never worked during fentanyl and that what that neighborhood looks like now is, uh, is, is, you know, I don't want to say war zone because that's a whole different, you know, world, but it, it's pretty uh, devastating. And, and yeah. I was pretty shocked by that. But the other thing, again, that um, I will say like insight where I worked was, was very well funded, you know, and a lot of nurses and a lot of different kind of people working in different positions. And what was beautiful was these sites were just a response that was grown from the community that people would say, oh, my, you know, people have a lot of opinions about people who use drugs that they can't really think for themselves and that they shouldn't be trusted. And this was a perfect example of, of what the power that they had and the compassion they had to really build something that was uh, and being responsible for people's lives in their hands, you know, and we're very capable of that. And I think it showed me that we really need to um, listen more to the people most affected, to the people using drugs, because, you know, the, the, they're the ones that are knowing what the drug supply looks like the ones that are seeing their friends pass away more than anybody and and know i think have, have a lot of the best tools even though these ideas and the problem i think with our response to this crisis is that we're so uncomfortable with all these ideas of safe supply and overdose prevention sites and all this stuff and we're like oh that can't there's got to be something else and by by then you know it's 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 too late and i think we need to really just get rid of this discomfort and these ideas that we think we know what's best because like I was mentioning earlier, our aunt that went to an AA meeting and we have to accept that we're in a different world. What we've been doing has not worked. This is like the worst crisis in terms of overdoses that we've ever seen. And in the U S here, we're facing over a hundred thousand deaths a year. So it's time to look at this whole issue from a different way. And I think these services aren't going to end the crisis, but they're going to save lives until we can really figure out how to structurally make those changes to, to get out of ourselves out of this, you know? Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. It hasn't been working. And I think that that's, if anybody, you don't even have to agree with the, you know, 
decriminalization or and all of those things, right? Safe supply and all the topics. Yeah. Just to accept the fact that it's just hasn't been working. There's no denying that. I mean, if anybody gets into a conversation and, and opposing perspectives or points and, you know, oh, I don't think we should do that. Well, has it worked? No. Okay, let's start there. And what a great place to, to conversation start. Okay, so I'm going to put this link up at shiftheads.ca so everyone can see it. Uh, Love in the time of fentanyl for the trailer. Uh, check out the uh, the entire film. Colin, um, I think you're evidence of the good that can come out of a terrible thing. Because to me, what I hear from you is that it's changed your life in a way that's made you a better person. Um, and yet, you know, we seem to harp on all the bad. And there are a whole bunch of angels out there. That, that are working to be kind to each other and take care of each other, even though some of them still fall back into some of the ugliest moments of their lives um, where they also don't want to be, and yet they still show up for each other. And so isn't it ironic to shine such a beautiful light on such an ugly place and then the reflection that comes back is just as beautiful. And I, I find that to be quite remarkable, Colin. Thank you. Thank you, Shane. Yeah, it means a lot. This is The Shift Podcast. Last weekend, there was a document dump. Document dumps drive me crazy. What is a document dump? That's what I call it anyway. It's when organizations, not only the government, businesses do it too. They release a bunch of information at about 4.45 on a Friday before a weekend or a long weekend. So they hope nobody catches it. They hope that everyone's sort of checked out for the day. And then if it ever comes up again, they come back and they say, what are you talking about? We released this to the public two weeks ago. And then now they're clear in their integrity of what they've given us. It's a little bit sneaky. Uh, Dwayne Bratt is here. Uh, he's with Mount Royal University. He's political science, awesomeness, and uh, just great to have you back, Dwayne. It's been a minute, so it's nice to see your handsome face. Hey, thanks, Shane, for having me. Okay, document dumps. Kind of standard fare. It's actually a bit of an art form inside politics goes on all the time in the worldview political science people though um where does that land for you so uh you use the term document dump uh the uh, the phrase i like is is taking out the trash oh. uh, and that's done you know late on a friday um usually late on a friday of a, of a long weekend and if we think about last friday it wasn't the rouleau report uh, on the uh, Emergencies Act. That came out in the early morning. Well, that was going to be the topic of discussion throughout the day. That was uh, telegraphed of when it was coming out. It was the documents that they released later that day in the hopes that because everybody was focused on reading this 2,000-page report or at least the 200-page executive summary, that the rest of it would get ignored because – you know, we can only pay attention to, to so much. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. So this is when the sustainable jobs uh, plan gets released is later on the Friday. Right. Um, I'm not sure how big a story this is in the rest of the country, but it's a really huge issue in Alberta. Yeah, this was the just um, transition originally called. Yeah. Yeah, and they changed so the name, they, they the changed the name, which was one of the demands of, of Premier Smith. Uh, but they went forward with it anyway, um, and so that got released later later in the day. But the Alberta government is no innocent bystander here. 
in the early evening, they released the rest of the names of the Preston Manning panel, which is looking into COVID in the province. But it's not an impartial inquiry. It is to look at all the harm that government public health restrictions during COVID caused. And the rest of the panelists are all on one side of this issue. And so releasing that on late Friday after all the other news, I think that's also part of, you know, taking out the trash day. Yeah. But it, it's a common strategy that all governments do. Well, and it's it's in art form too, right? I mean, businesses do it as well. When they've got something bad that's happened and they want to make sure that they, you know, put out their public consult, they'll do it when everyone's already taken Friday afternoon off work so nobody catches on to it. But it's just such dirty pool, Dwayne. Like, who, does it fall on us, the constituents, the voters, the Canadians that need to be paying attention to these things? Do the media outlets need to have, you know, sort of these Hawkeye investigative folks that are watching for this stuff. I mean, the Globe and Mail caught it this weekend. The TV networks caught up to it real quick, but it really was a, there really was a distraction. It was a bit of a pick and roll that happened in regards to the Emergencies Act combo versus the uh, influence in elections from CSIS combo. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, when, uh, so I knew that the Rulo report was coming out on the Friday morning, but I wake up and there's the front page of the Globe and Mail talking about election interference by the Chinese in 2021. You know, so I'm focusing on that. And then the Rulo report comes in and then the sustainability uh, jobs plan comes in. It was a, uh, a news of Pelosa. Uh, but you look at newsrooms now, they are decimated. They don't have the staff that they used to. And particularly on a Friday afternoon and a Friday afternoon of a long weekend, you're you're dealing with the most junior people uh, that are already in, in skeleton mode. And so that is why you deliver the, the bad news. Mm. Well, and, and, you know, and, and there is an art form to this and forget about government and, yeah. and forget about, um, you know, businesses. We all have to deliver bad news at some point in our yeah. life to somebody, you know, picking and choosing when that moment occurs, you know, is uh, is a skill. And, yes. and sometimes we, we screw it up. I guess the difference is, is that to me, the government, I mean, they're all employees of the people. So the people <laughs> they're accountable to probably shouldn't feel very tricked by it. Businesses, while that's that's independent enterprise. I mean, they get to deal with the consequences of their actions differently um, than Canadians do. So I kind of struggle with all of it. You're right, though. I mean, even if you do nothing but look at the calculation of the number of reporters that used to be in newspaper newsrooms versus how many are in them today, comparatively speaking, that doesn't include changes to, to TV and radio and all the other bits and pieces that are out there. I mean, the number of uh, media gets beat up pretty bad, but the reality is just the number of available people is completely different today because of the viewing habits of people have gone online. They're not buying newspapers anymore. They're not doing those oh, things anymore, right? Absolutely. And and alternative media uh, has not taken that place. Uh, they don't have reporters. They have columnists. They have commentators. So they respond two stories they don't necessarily dig in and monitor stories so are they sitting in the parliamentary press gallery are they covering city halls uh you know are they in legislations uh no they're no they're not yeah. and so well 
legacy, mainstream, whatever media term you want to use has been decimated. This rise in alternative media hasn't filled that void. Right. And there's no standards to, um, no. to Twitter. Like Twitter does not have a standards council. So um, now at the risk of sounding like I'm completely defending broadcasters, because I will, because of the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the reality is the bodies just aren't there um, anymore and they get blamed for it, but it really boils down to Canadians again. It boils down to Canadians on if you want more resources at your local FM channel that plays your rock music, maybe consider listening to the rock channel a little bit more often. If you want to have better six o'clock news, consider watching TV news or at least watching your local news on the streaming service as opposed to CNN all the time. I mean, the same, same thing goes back to Dwayne. The fact that these document dumps on Fridays, Canadians aren't holding, we don't hold our MPs into account anymore. I see it maybe as some of this political uh, partisan stripe thing that, that you know, you've got to be left or right. You, you can't have a mind of your own if you're in politics anymore. Follow the party line and all these things. But there seems to be a real recurring pattern in every angle we talk about this that it boils down to Canadians not paying attention. Do you find that as a political scientist, that we as people, we as citizens, we just, we don't? Yeah, and, and part of that is we're busy living, you know, our lives and we're, you know, picking up the kids and taking them to hockey practice and we're trying to get dinner arranged. You know, my, my wife and I joke that if we weren't texting about what we were going to have for dinner, we probably wouldn't communicate all day. <laughs> uh, and and so you don't have time for that. So you have to rely on those people whose job it is to monitor those situations. But if you're the reporter, you're being asked to do multiple stories in a, in a day and you, you, you've got to pick and choose, right? And especially if it is trying to wade through, you know, a 200 page document, like that takes an awful lot of, uh, of work. And so you end up often just relaying the news release that comes with it. Um, you know, and, and putting in some of your own words, but basically just reprinting a, a government news release. And it's only in the days later that you realize just how important this, this subject was, and then you can devote more, more time to it. And so we've always had, you know, document dumps and, and taking out the trash on Fridays. It's a longstanding uh, communication tool, uh, but it's become in a sense, better or worse, depending on your perspective, yep. because of the uh, the decimating um, uh, news crews in, yep. in office and the 24-hour-a-day news cycle. So the, the days of, you know, the 6 o'clock news, you know, or the 10 o'clock news or your afternoon paper, th those are long gone. Right. Um, you know, I still get paper copies of uh, a couple papers. Uh, but I've already read some of those stories over the course of the day before it even gets to me. And you get often different versions online. Yeah, TV people used to, to call the newspapers. Yeah. yeah, we TV people used to call the, the newspapers the, the yesterday pages. Um, so, uh, you know, w political scientist, I I've always thought of you and your colleagues as guardians of democracy in that your, my understanding of your job, and your correction, please, is that you guys pick apart not only the structures of the democracy, but also the behaviors inside the democracy uh, to sort of monitor where the behavior gets or where the structures get taken advantage of and recognized as sort of a cause and effect thing with behavior. 
when it comes to uh, and correct me uh, if that's not accurate when it comes to this conversation and it's election interference wouldn't that be like the the golden ticket of important things that a government should let the citizens know of holy crap yeah and and so in in one sense this was not a new story you know global had covered this in in the in the past there'd been other stories but you know, Bob Fife is one of the best investigative journalists we've got in this country, and they actually got copies of the of the uh, intelligence documents, uh, and that's what made this more significant. We even saw a, a confrontation that that uh, President Xi of China and Justin Trudeau had on the sidelines of a G20 discussing this, and so rumors of Chinese interference had been going on, but this was a um, it's now been four days, four straight stories building off of this, where they actually got a copy of the documents and they showed how extensive this was, what tools they did, but also the targeting, not just the government officials, but of businessmen as well. Any uh, president or vice president of a, of a major or even a smaller Canadian company traveling to China, there was a briefing on that person before they arrived. And, you know, in some of it, it was old Cold War tactics of the, of the honeypot and trying to, you know, set them up with sexual blackmail uh, and all sorts of other dirty tricks uh, that uh, just continued, just the actors have, uh, have changed. And so normally that would have been the story. And it's one I have been following closely. I've, I've done um, a bunch of work on Canada-Chinese relations. But the Emergencies Act had never occurred before. We've never had a report on this. This was something that paralyzed Ottawa as well as Windsor and, and Coots, Alberta. And so this was probably the most important story to come out, even if the long-term damage to uh, election integrity may have been more significant. I'm trying and to take it. And, and if you're, you're trying to choose, you know, what goes number one and what goes number two and how much time do you spend on one and how much time do you spend on the other, given that we're, we have to make choices of what we do with our day. Yeah. Well, you know, in all fairness, the one story, uh, the result was the government was justified in what they did. And the other story is it's possible that someone else interfered with your competitors and you got the job when you maybe shouldn't have. I mean, I think that that's which story would you attach yourself to as a politician? Yeah. And the story of Chinese election interference should not be new to us, given the extensive coverage uh, about Russian efforts in 2016 in the U.S. election, as well as Russian efforts <clears throat> in the Brexit referendum. Right. This doesn't mean that votes were changed or, you know, some sort of thing like that. But when you're providing illegal donations and you're spreading misinformation uh, on Chinese language uh, newspapers, um, you know, when, when you're providing volunteers you know, that is a scope of, of interference, whether that changed the result or not. I simply don't know, but I think obviously we need to investigate this in, in greater detail and an honest investigation that doesn't break down, unfortunately, on partisan grounds, but it will break down on partisan grounds. So uh, two things there, three things. There is a, there are many military people, by the way, that in say that Russia was a heavy influencer on the trucker convoy, therefore the Emergencies Act too, by the way, that's a big conversation going on in the background. Um, 
the and we've had that assertion be made by multiple military people here on the shift alone. The other yeah. part is the um, do we need to know as Canadians are these things that it's better for them to play the public political card? We saw that sidebar that you were talking about at the conference. Um, is it one of these things that it's in our best interest if they play it down just because it optically looks better? Um, no, no, no. We we need to know that our elections have integrity to them and that there may be bad actors trying to interfere, but the results have to be accepted and have to be believed to be accepted. And if you want to know the dangers of what happens when election results are not accepted, just look south. Uh, where there remain a significant minority that believe Donald Trump is still the democratically elected president of the United States. Um, and that's simply not true. But if you have a significant minority of Canadians who now believe that the Liberals were not democratically elected in 2021, that the Chinese put Justin Trudeau on the throne, as it were, that is incredibly damaging to, to Canadian democracy. Okay, so... Who releases this info? Because if it's not partisan politics and it's Friday afternoon and they're going, hey, uh, we are employees of the Canadian people. Our job is to release this report. Um, why is it that there is political influence on one gets released in the morning in good time, the other one gets released later in the day to be a little bit more secretive? Shouldn't as Shouldn't this be one of those offices that is free and clear of partisan politics where they can't influence that? Or is this just the reality of what it looks like? Well, we, we've got multiple different stories here, right? And so the, the Globe and Mail story on election interference, that was based on leaks that they were getting from CSIS officials or at least people who had knowledge of what was in those documents, whether that was in the Privy Council or whether that was in the Prime Minister's office. They were lying as, as much investigative journalism is on, on leaks from those who, who know, from people who believe that it needed to go into the public domain. Right. Uh, Rulo comes out in the morning, that was widely expected, but then the government chose that day, later on that day, uh, to release uh, their uh, sustainable uh, jobs plan. Um, so, it, again, it, it's tough to focus on so many different stories when they all occur at the... Uh, at the same time. I guess that as a Canadian, I would like to think that the guy who does the timing of the, so this is in for any one of these stories, except for the leaks one, but every one of these stories are um, supposed to be nonpartisan research pieces on what worked out. Like the judge who did the emergencies act review, like yeah. his resume is a pretty well respected. Holy cow in this country. Um, and so that's supposed to be a nonpartisan review of what it is and be taken as to be, you know, accurate. And yet when the information gets released, gets crafted by one party, shouldn't that office that does the releases, should that not be by or be a free of the partisanship that seems to be going on? Well, I, I think it was, it, it came from the, the public inquiry and yeah. then the prime minister had a press conference and the leader of the opposition had a press conference and you end up doing what's, what's known as the reaction story, um to uh so we have the report and then all the various reactions i see uh to it yeah and then the other story about the jobs transition plan that is more of a proposal by one party inside the government therefore they're going to yeah. craft when they release it right exactly okay well it's important to create that distinction isn't it yeah yeah amazing what uh lacrosse team are we cheering for this spring by the way oh that's the mountaineers 
uh, yeah. the Calgary Junior A Mountaineers that right. I'm president of and former yeah. coach. There we go. Uh, Dwayne Bratt with uh, Mount Royal University is not only a big lacrosse fan, gets into the refing and the coaching and the managing and all that stuff too. So if you ever want lacrosse info, uh, you can also go to Dwayne too. It's great to see you, bud. Thanks for being here. Okay. Thanks, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with... Guns and Roses. I feel like I might get canceled here. Um, I do. I am not okay with Guns and Roses. What? I can't stand them. <laughs> I How can't. do you not stand Guns? I and know. Roses? I know. It's just. I just don't get it. You know, like I there. It's the single most overplayed band on radio ever. I've, I've heard "Sweet Child of Mine." Too many times. Welcome to the jungle. Too many times. Paradise City is the song I like the most off of Appetite. It's just, I don't know. And I just, I think the big thing for me is I don't like Axel's voice. You kind of like It just doesn't do it for me, man. I, I just think there's better classic rock out there. I would like to add in the context that uh, Ryan loves Morrissey and the Smiths. I also love death metal. So, like, you know, I do dip my toe in the rock and roll here. So, you know, it's, it's just my it's my personal yeah, opinion. That's it. Very important for rock and roll. Won't deny that. Uh, okay. Well, um, Sweet Child, I, I think Guns N' Roses are all right. I mean, they're just iconic. It's just that simple. They, they can put you into party mood in the first, like, few seconds, right? Like, oh, yeah, it's happening. And then that's welcome to the party. It's just that, like that's literally how quickly it happens for, I would say, most people. Now, depending on who you are and what you're doing, and I'm going to just for the sake of um, efficiency here, just going to do this now and uh, and throw this in there, too. It's a typo. It's a typo. Sweet Child of Mine is a karaoke classic, especially in the car. Nice vibrato, buddy. All right. All right. Alice, let's go. Flat. It's so flat. I can't even, I don't even know. You don't even look good while you're singing. The worst thing I've ever heard. This is $1,200 a week for voice lessons, and this is what I get? Okay, I'm going to save it with the solo. Bow, bow, I'm dead. I can sing like That's from Step Brothers. Classic. And um, I can, that's, that's the, Ryan thinks that's the real version. Don't tell him, though. I think it's a very funny version of it. It's very, you're right. You're right. It's good. Now, Canadians can finally go uh, to the jungle with Guns N' Roses. Tour begins July, and by July, I mean June 5th in Tel Aviv, Israel, before making its way across Europe for 15 shows. Now, keep in mind, they're going to do a bunch of shows. We hope they don't fight by the time they get here. Cancel stuff. The band yeah. will then cross the Atlantic for a slate of shows across North America, which will be bookended by appearances in Canada. They'll kick off the North, North, North American show. That wasn't a typo. That was my head. Uh, August 5th uh, in Moncton. Then they're going to go to Montreal. Then September 3rd, they're going to go to Rogers Center in Toronto. They're going to wrap up the tour in Vancouver, BC Place, October 16th. Moncton. So nothing on the prairies. Moncton. Not nothing again. Moncton's amazing, but like real Moncton. 
not nowhere yeah. in Western Canada aside from Vancouver. That's that's an interesting choice. Well, you think good for hey, like, good for Atlantic Canada. They got to do a Moncton. You do Edmonton. I mean, Calgary has no it's, venue that can handle. No, that show, yeah, it's but... fine. Can't even play at McMahon because of the noise complaint laws. You know, that's why we don't get good concerts yeah. anymore. Is because people yeah. complain about noise. You're not allowed to be loud late at loud late at night. Welcome to our city. Anyway, um, Toronto, you're good. Vancouver, you're good. Edmonton, you really should have this show. And um, and probably Winnipeg. Let's be honest. Why not? Okay, now tickets will be available starting with the band's night train presale, which begins Wednesday. Today at 10 a.m. local time. This will be the first time the group has toured North America since uh, the We're Effing Back Tour in 2021. Mm -hmm. I just, that would have been a great one to put in quotes, by the way. <laughs> uh, of, I don't know. The swears. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan's trying to get me in trouble. Um, I'm sorry, Guns N' Roses are classic rock, question mark? Damn, I got old. Oh, you don't want to know what classic rock is today. Oh, no. Nickelback, no. how you remind me as classic rock today. That's, appro that's approaching classic rock, actually, like status now. Yeah. Yeah. So... It's a very ugly slide rule. Um, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Don't worry, Ryan. I also don't like Guns N' Roses. Thank you. It's from Brian and Drumheller. I don't think there's anything wrong with liking Guns N' Roses. I should also make that very clear. I don't think that, you know, it's a bad thing. They're a, they're, they're a fun band, but it's just not for me. Hey, so. man, they make a good T-shirt. Like, their T-shirt has been iconic for decades. Yes, Still and worn much like Nirvana, millions upon millions of people have bought that T-shirt without ever listening to a Guns N' Roses song in their entire life. Yeah. yeah. You'll notice Brian and Drumheller doesn't say, hey, Ryan, I agree with you. The Smiths are awesome. He doesn't say I'm that. I'm used to that, though. That's fine. I've got my pocket of people that agree with me, and I can, I've, come, I've made peace with that fact. Yeah. Pocket of people that, okay, Ryan's living in some sort of strange world. All right. Are you okay with lakes? Oh, lakes. I love nice lakes. lakes. I wish I can't find a lake without beachfront property for less than a million dollars in this country. It's awesome. Yeah, no, it's impossible. Yeah. I grew up in a community that had an artificial lake, which was actually oh. a pretty awesome man-made lake. It was, you know, and it, you could do anything on there. You could paddleboard, you could have the um uh the paddle boats. Uh, those are fun. There was even some fishing. And I think they're a great addition. I, I don't love suburbs. I don't love living in a suburb. But if you can get a lake in a suburb, it adds so much to your community. It gives you so much to do. Uh, and uh, those are some core memories from my childhood. Going down, getting an ice cream, swimming in the lake. Yeah, love it. Rocking out to uh, Guns N' Roses in the minivan. Back then, it probably would have been, it wouldn't have been trained back then. It probably would have been like, oh, maybe a little bit like Kelly Clarkson, 2001. Oh. Yeah, around then, it would have been some Kelly Clarkson. That would have been my guess. I'll confirm with my cent. mom tomorrow. Yep. Okay, good. Now, in Canada, you're bound to find a flock of cobra chickens and some other beasts lounging around a Canadian lake. But in New York, residents found something almost as terrifying as a Canadian goose. A gator. Yes, an alligator was abandoned in Brooklyn. This four-foot-long alligator was spotted by park maintenance staff who quickly snapped into action. One of the enforcement officers uh, 
was notified about an alligator in the lake, surprisingly, on a Sunday morning very early. She was able to use a snare pole to um, grab it and pull it to shore. I got there shortly after that, and um, together we got it in the crate. Officials say the gator was found lethargic and possibly cold-shocked since it's native to warm tropical climates. It was brought to animal care control to be examined and treated, and then transported to the Bronx Zoo where it will be rehabilitated. It couldn't be in a, a better place than the Wildlife Conservation Society. It's a very lucky animal. Uh, way better than being at the shoe store. That was CBS News, by the way. So how did a gator get to Brooklyn? The current theory is that the gator became an unwanted pet, so the owner just dumped him into the lake. It's probably like an ex did something. Now, that's not a great plan, just so you know, but one local man hoped the gator was uh, able to have a feast before his trip to Brooklyn was cut short. Not sure what the gator would have eaten, probably a couple of the geese that were uh, sliced over at Vinny's on the corner there. I would hope that the gator could also maybe feast on the geese. A little bit of a lesson, put them in their place. Yeah. Well, if anybody um, would be happy to see the, you know, of any of the animals, I mean, they are protected in Canada, right? Yeah, no. Which they're protected. So why are they so mean? You know, why are they so territorial? We are legally not allowed to go near you. You know, like we we have to respect you. You're on our currency, and yet you still attack us. Like you with like it's almost like they have rabies. They don't. They just hate us that much. I feel like the alligator would be more chill. I'm just um trying to see if the Canadian geese is on um any of our money. I don't think it is. Hundred that's a loon. Oh no, it's not a loony, that's a loon. (laughs) 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 Whoops. I just thought of the silhouette. I thought of the silhouette of a bird and went, that's a goose. I'm pretty sure there was a, um, a I want to say, a, a, I remember an old fiver. Like my grandpa had an old paper money that I believe had Canadian geese on it. I'm almost certain. A back of 100. Yeah. I'm trying to see. Birds of Canada banknotes. Um, yeah, you're funny, by the way. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Because if, I mean, if it was a goose. They probably would have called goosey. it a goosey. <laughs> goosey. <laughs> yeah. How much, oh, how much is coffee today, Vern? Oh, it'll be one goosey. Okay. The uh, the $2 bill. Yeah. Was not it. No? Oh, I thought it no, definitely No, it had became that. the no? toonie. Um, I'm trying to see which. Uh, I've got this list here, but it doesn't tell me what the damn bird is. Well, luckily we have Where's like. The- like thousands of listeners that take money very seriously. I remember the last time we talked about designs on bills, we got like 30 texts. So I'm sure somebody's already finding a way to correct my error and making fun of the... you telling me to hurry up? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not telling you to hurry up. I'm just trying to distract people from the fact that I can <laughs> confuse a loon with a goose. I think that's loony, awesome. An iconic piece of Canadiana. The bird and the bird on the reverse is the belted kingfisher on the five dollar note. Yeah. Um, the ten dollar note is the osprey. Twenty dollar note is the loon, also not a goose. Um, the fifty dollar note 
Um, it's like an owl. Snowy owl. $100 oh. note. Oh, it's Canadian goose. There it is. There it is. Yes, I'm looking at a picture of it right now. Yes, that's fantastic. So you it's can have your one. goosey. I can. Yes, 100 gooseys. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I feel a little bit better. By 2015, counterfeit versions of the banknote represented half of all counterfeit banknotes in circulation in Quebec. 80% of counterfeit $100 banknotes in the province. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, it was introduced on December 1990 and withdrawn on 2004. This one. It's not very long. I don't know. This is now they've gone to the plastic money. It's not the same anymore. Anyway, yep. there you go. Uh, a little uh, a little money history for you there with uh, the goosey from the shift. I could have sworn I had a goose. No. No, it's a duck. We should just anytime. Nope, we, should, you know, I could, we should get a fire-breathing dragon as our Canadian goose sound effect, actually. Ooh. That's more valid. That's it. Yeah. That's not it. Nope. Definitely not it. Peaceful. Kind. I have a loon here somewhere, too. I swear to you, I have a loon. Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Man, I don't think we can top Goosey. That's pretty much the end of the show. Thanks for listening. We need to go. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Are you okay with peeps? What up, peeps? Peeps. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's so gross. I don't know. The marshmallow candies, unless it's Lucky Charms, I'd rather just have a marshmallow. And I feel like the peeps are just, uh, I don't know, they're too sugary. Like, I just, you know. And I, I never really had it as a candy when I was a kid. It was more... Uh, chocolate. It was more just Easter bun or giant Kinder eggs, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, peeps are terrible. Um, Thank you. Just saying. Peeps are a marshmallow candy that have been around since 1953 in Canada and the USA. The shape of little chicks, they're basically a blob of marshmallow painted yellow that looks like a chick or a bunny. Uh, other animals as well, holiday shapes, but they're absolutely disgusting. And yet someone thought this might be a good idea. When you think of great duos in history, you think of peanut butter and jelly, hollow notes, you know, that's my favorite mm -hmm. right there. And now you can add Pepsi and Peeps to that list. Yeah, that's right. The soft drink and the polarizing Easter candy are teaming up like the Wonder Twins, <laughs> creating Pepsi X Peeps, which will, of course, have a flavor like Peeps candy. And now this actually isn't the first time this drink has been available, but the first time it was just a few thousand cans given away in a contest. But now psh, you can buy it. And they noticed many of those, by the way, those cans, the thousands, they were reselling online for thousands of dollars. What? They figured, hey, why not get some of that money for ourselves? We're going to release to everybody. <laughs> oh, boy. Should we talk no. about? No, okay. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, that was CBS News, by the way. Um, they're now available in stores, unless, of course, you want to go uh, compete online with all the millennials and get them. Uh, let us know if your teeth survive. One sip of this thanks for listening to the shift podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review the show and share with anyone you like get it on apple podcast google podcast spotify and curious cast.ca